Chapter 10 of English Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Pyle. English Literature by Geraldine Hodgson. Chapter 10 Odes. Like the sonnet, the ode is generally classed with lyrics. Yet, having, like the sonnet, a definite form, and in its perfection conforming to rules, it is entitled to a little corner apart. The ode, whether in its simpler form, called after the poet Horace, who lived in the first century B.C., the Horatian, or in its most rigid form, called after Pindar, who lived four centuries earlier, the Pindaric, is always a classical form of poem. The Pindaric ode has a threefold division the strophe and antistrophe, which should be of precisely the same meter, and the apode. The ode, as a poetic form, was recovered in the years of the Renaissance, but the rules governing it appear to have been very imperfectly understood. The Elizabethans, who borrowed so much from Renaissance Italy, were the first Englishmen who tried to write odes, and they contented themselves with the Horatian form. They produced, therefore, lyrical poems, stately and concentrated, dealing with a single thought, which eventually they brought to a high and definite conclusion. Like Spencer's great marriage hymn, The Epithalamian, Ben Jonson wrote some odes, of which, probably the best known, is a call to himself to leave the loathed stage, a thought suggested by the failure of one of his comedies. A follower of Jonson, Thomas Randolph, wrote a fine ode to Master Anthony Strafford, of which the first three and sixth verses will give an idea of the whole. Come, spur away, I have no patience for a longer stay, but must go down, and leave the chargeable noise of this great town. I will the country see, where old simplicity, though hid in grey, doth look more gay, than foppery and plush and scarlet clad. Farewell, you city wits, that are almost at civil war. Tis time that I grow wise, when all the world grows mad. More of my days I will not spend again in idiot's praise, or to make sport, or some slight puny of the inns of court. Then, worthy Strafford, say, How shall we spend the day? With what delights shorten the nights? When from this tumult we are got secure, Where mirth with all her freedom goes, Yet shall no finger lose, Where every word is thought, And every thought is pure. Then from the tree will cherries pluck, And pick the strawberry, And every day go see the wholesome country girls make hay, whose brown hath lovelier grace than any painted face that I do know Hyde Park can show, where I would rather gain a kiss than meet, though some of them in greater state might court my love with plate, the beauties of the cheap and wives of Lombard Street. Ours is the sky, where at what fowl we please our hawk shall fly, nor will we spare to hunt the crafty fox or timorous hare. But let our hounds run loose, and any ground they'll choose, the buck shall fall, the stag, and all. Our pleasures must from their own warrants be, For to my muse, if not to me, I'm sure all game is free. Heaven, earth, are all but parts of her great royalty. So rich is the realm of poetry. Andrew Marvell's ode on Cromwell's return from Ireland is one of the best-known poems in our language. It is a tribute from a royalist, but its greatness is shown by the fact that it never grows stale, not even these most often quoted lines. 
and if we would speak true, much to the man is due, who from his private gardens, where he lived, reserved, and austere, as if his highest plot to plant the bergamot, could by industrious valor climb to ruin the great work of time, and cast the kingdoms old into another mold. Though justice against fate complain, and plead the ancient rights in vain, but those to hold or break, as men are strong or weak, nature that hateth emptiness, allows of penetration less, and therefore must make room where greater spirits come. What field of all the civil war, where his were not the deepest scar? And Hampton shows what part he had of wiser art. Where twining subtle fears with hope, he wove a net of such a scope, that Charles himself might chase to Caris Brook's narrow case, that thence the royal actor born the tragic scaffold might adorn, while round the armed bands might clap their bloody hands. He nothing common did or mean upon that memorable scene, but with his keener eye the axe's edge did try. Nor called the gods with vulgar spite to vindicate his helpless right, but bowed his comely head down as upon a bed. Whether this poem deserves the name Ode or not may be a disputed point. No one can deny Marvell's insight into men and affairs. Milton, our great epic poet, who also compressed his powers into the sonnet's framework, wrote one great ode, that, on the morning of Christ's divinity. His poems on time, and out of solemn music, beautiful as they are, hardly conform to any model of odes. In the middle of the seventeenth century the Horatian ode met a rival, in the form which, in old classical days, had preceded it by several centuries. Abraham Cowley, living in France as a royalist refugee, discovered one book which became his only literary companion, the Odes of Pindar. In spite of his close study of it, he somehow failed to grasp Pindar's real purpose. Nevertheless, he discarded the oration form which till then had sufficed English poets, and produced a number of what he called Pindaric Odes. He could more or less reproduce the outward form, but the secret of Plato's inspired man escaped him. There he once began an ode with the line, Pindar is imitable by none, for that truth conveyed to him less than might have been hoped. Dryden followed, and however little Pindaric his ode on St. Celia's Day may be, it is a great paean in praise of harmony and music. William Congreve, the playwright, approached Pindar more nearly. His ode on Mrs. Arabella Hunt's singing is admittedly a great poem. The opening, middle, and closing lines are extraordinarily beautiful that all be hushed and softest motion cease, be every loud tumultuous thought at peace, and every ruder gasp of breath be calm as in the arms of death. But hark, the heavenly sphere turns round, and silence now is drowned in ecstasy of sound. How on a sudden the still air is charmed, as if all harmony were just alarmed, while we, charmed with the loved excess, are wrapped in the small forgetfulness of all, of all but of the present happiness, wishing forever in that state to lie, forever to be dying so, yet never die. It was left for Thomas Gray, the poet whose lot was to write few poems, but those of strange perfection to fashion odes on the true Pindaric model. This being so, to give extracts is to mangle them. Consequently, the progress of poetry shall be given intact, which involves the exclusion of his equally fine ode, the bard. Awake, Aeolian lyre, awake, and give to rapture all thy trembling strings. From Helicon's harmonious springs a thousand rills their mazy progress take. 
the laughing flowers that round them blow, drink life and fragrance as they flow. Now the rich stream of music winds along, deep, majestic, smooth, and strong. Through verdant vales and Ceres' golden rain, now rolling down the steep amain, headlong, impetuous, see it pour, the rocks and nodding groves rebellow to the roar. O sovereign of the willing soul, parent of sweet and solemn breathing airs, enchanting shell, the sullen cares and frantic passions hear thy soft control. On Thracia's hills the lord of war has curbed the fury of his car, and dropped his thirsty lance at thy command. Perching on the sceptred hand of Jove, thy magic lulls the feathered king with ruffled plumes and flagging wing. Quenched in the dark clouds of slumber lie the terror of his beak and lightnings of his eye. Thee the voice the dance obey, tempered to thy warbled lay. O'er Idalia's velvet green the rosy-crowned loves are seen. On Cytheria's day, with antic sports and blue-eyed pleasures, frisking light in frolic measures, now pursuing, now retreating, now encircling troops they meet, to brisk notes and cadence beating, glance their many twinkling feet, slow melting strains their queen's approach declare, where she turns the graces homage pay, with arms sublime that float upon the air, and gliding state she wins her easy way. O'er her warm cheek and rising bosom moved the bloom Of young desire and purple light of love. Man's feeble race what ills await, Labor and penury, the racks of pain, Disease and sorrow's weeping train, And death, sad refuge from the storms of fate, The fond complaint my song disprove, And justify the laws of Jove. Say he has given in vain the heavenly muse, Night in all her sickly dews, her spectres wan, and birds a boding cry. He gives to range the dreary sky, till down the eastern cliffs afar, Hyperion's march they spy, and glittering shafts of war. In climes beyond the solar road, where shaggy forms o'er ice-built mountains roam, the muse has broke the twilight gloom to cheer the shivering native's dull abode, and oft beneath the odorous shade of Chile's boundless forest laid. She deigns to hear the savage youth repeat in loose numbers wildly sweet their feather-cinctured chiefs and dusky loves, her track, where are the goddess roves, glory pursue, and generous shame, the unconquerable mind, and freedom's holy flame. Woods that wave o'er Delphi's steep, isles that crown the Aegean deep, fields that cool Elysus slaves, or where meanders amber waves and lingering labyrinths creep. How do your tuneful echoes languish, mute but to the voice of anguish? For each old poetic mountain inspiration breathed around, every shade and hallowed fountain murmured deep a solemn sound, till the sad nine, in Greece's evil hour, left their Parnassus for the Latian plains. Alike they scorn the pomp of tyrant power and coward vice that revels in her chains. When Latium had her lofty spirit lost, they sought, O Albion, next thy sea-encircled coast. Far from the sun and summer gale and thy green lap was nature's darling laid. What time, where lucid Avon strayed, to him the mighty mother did unveil her awful face. The dauntless child stretched forth his little arms and smiled. This pencil take, she said, 
whose colors clear richly paint the vernal year. Thine, too, these golden keys, immortal boy. This can unlock the gates of joy, of horror that, and thrilling fears, or ope the sacred source of sympathetic tears. Nor second he that rode sublime, upon the seraph wings of ecstasy, the secrets of the abyss to spy. He passed the flaming bounds of place and time, the living throne, the sapphire blaze, where angels tremble, where they gaze, he saw, but blasted with excessive light, closed his eyes in endless night. Behold, where Dryden's less presumptuous car, wide o'er the fields of glory bear, two coursers of ethereal race, with necks in thunder clothed and long resounding pace. Hark, his hands the lyre explore, bright-eyed fancy, hovering o'er, scatters from her pictured urn, thoughts that breathe and words that burn. But ah, is heard no more, O lyre divine, what daring spirit wakes thee now? Though he inherit nor the pride nor ample pinion that the Thebian eagle bear, sailing with supreme dominion through the azure deep of air, yet oft before his infant eyes would run such forms as glitter in the muse's ray, with orient hues unborrowed of the sun, yet shall he mount and keep his distant way, beyond the limits of a vulgar fate, beneath the good how far? but far above the great. Though Gray's Progress of Poesy and The Bard are probably the most famous Pindaric odes in our language, some critics maintain that Akenside's are still nearer to the original model. Collins returned to the more formless kind of ode to which, in easy fashion, the general name of Horatian is given. Whatever it be called, his poem to evening is singularly beautiful, lingering in memory with Gray's elegy and Wordsworth's evening voluntaries. William Watson, in one of his moments of apt insight, wrote delicately of the interval made by Gray and Collins in the dry common sense of the eighteenth century. From dewy pastures upland sweet with thyme, a virgin breeze freshened the jaded day. It waited Collins' lonely vesper chime. It breathed abroad the frugal note of Gray. The romantic poets of the early part of the nineteenth century, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Campbell, Shelley, Keats, all wrote impassioned, sky-aspiring poems on a single subject, which might be, and have been called, odes. But little pretension to the old classical models survived. Byron once, in his long narrative poem, Child Herald, slipped in five stanzas which, considering the wide poetic license of the time, might well have stood alone as an ode to-night. Probably Keats is most truly known by his odes. For one who will read his long poem, Endymion, or even the shorter Hyperion, several will return more than once to the Odes, to the Nightingale with its last four famous verses, to the Grecian Urn with its perfect, most exquisite second stanza, perhaps his Ode to Autumn, singularly beautiful in its vision, in its subtle color, in its brevity, like the swiftly passing season of full maturity, is less well known than some. Season of mist and mellow fruitfulness, Close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy shells. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting, careless, on a granary floor, thy hair soft-lifted by the winnowing wind, 
or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep, drowsed with the fume of poppies, while thy hook spares the next swath and all its twined flowers. And sometimes, like a leaner, thou dost keep steady thy leaden hand across a brook, or by a cider-press, with patient look. Thou watchest the last oozings, hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? Ay, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too, while bardic clouds bloom the soft dying day, and touch the stuttle plains with rosy hue. Then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn, among the river shallows. Then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn, among the river sallows, borne aloft, or sinking as the light wind lives or dies, and the full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly bourne. Hedge crickets sing, and now with treble soft the red-breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. It is even more difficult to choose among Shelley's odes, the skylark, the cloud, the west wind, and the ode to liberty are all of poetry's finest tissue. It is perhaps rash to guess, yet it is possible that the Greeks themselves might have preferred the elusive lines which Shelley put into Pan's mouth. From the forest and highlands we come, we come, from the river-girt islands where loud waves are dumb, listening to my sweet pipings, the wind and the reeds and the rushes, the bees on the bells of time, the birds on the myrtle-bushes, the cical above in the lime, and the lizards below in the grass were as silent as ever old Tomollus was, listening to my sweet pipings. Liquid Pinius was flowing, and all dark Tempe lay in Pelian shadow, outgrowing the light of the dying day, speeded by my sweet pipings, the Selene and Sylvans and Fauns, and the nymphs of the woods and waves to the edge of the moist river lawns, and the brink of the dewy caves. And all that did them attend and follow were silent with love, as you now, Apollo, with envy of my sweet pipings. I sang of the dancing stars, I sang of the daedal earth, and of heaven, and the giant wars, and love, and death, and birth, and then I changed my pipings, singing how down the vale of Menelaus I pursued a maiden and clasped a reed. Gods and men, we are all deluded thus. It breaks in our bosom, and then we bleed. All wept, and I think both ye now would, if envy or age had not frozen your blood at the sorrow of my sweet pipings. Tennyson, as poet laureate, was forced from time to time to write odes on public events. But he wrote one in his capacity of pure poet, the following verses of which are some of the most beautiful lines to be found even among his early poems. Thou who stealest fire from the fountains of the past to glorify the present, O haste, visit my low desire. Strengthen me, enlighten me. I faint in this obscurity, thou dewy dawn of memory. Come not as thou camest of late, flinging the gloom of yesternight on the white day, but robed in softened light of orient state. Well, home thou camest with the morning mist, even as a maid whose stately brow the dew-impearled winds of dawn have kissed, when she, as thou, stays on her floating locks the lovely freight of overflowing blooms and the earliest shoots of orient green, giving safe pledge of fruits which in wintertide shall star the black earth with brilliance rare. Come forth, I charge thee, arise, thou of the many tongues, the myriad eyes. Thou comest not with shows of flaunting vines, 
unto mine inner eye divinest memory. Thou wert not nursed by the waterfall, which ever sounds and shines a pillar of white light upon the wall of purple cliffs, aloof, decried. Come from the woods that belt the grey hillside, the seven elms, the poplars four, that stand beside my father's door, and chiefly from the brook that loves to purl o'er matted crests and ribbed sand, or dimple in the dark of rushy coves, drawing into his narrow earthen urn in every elbow and turn the filtered tribute of the rude woodland. Oh, hither lead thy feet. Pour round my ears the live-long bleat of the thick-fleeced sheep from watted folds. Upon the ridge wolds, where the first met in song, hath wakened loud over the dark, dewy earth forlorn, what time the amber morn forth gushes from beneath a low-hung cloud. The great writers of odes in the latter part of the nineteenth century were Coventry Patmore and Francis Thompson. The latters are long and suffer grievous loss of cut. This chapter shall close, therefore, with perhaps the most characteristic of Patmore in his unique series, The Unknown Eros. It was not like your great and gracious ways. Do you, that have not other to lament, never, my love, repent of how that July afternoon you went? With sudden unintelligible phrase and frightened eye upon your journey of so many days, without a single kiss or a good-bye, I knew indeed that you were parting soon, and so we sate, within the low sun's rays, you whispering to me, for your voice was weak, your harrowing praise. Well, it was well, to hear you such things speak, and I could tell what made your eyes a glowing gloom of love, as the warm south wind sombers a march grove, and it was like your great and gracious ways to turn your talk on daily things, my dear, lifting the luminous pathetic lash to let the laughter flash whilst I drew near, because you spoke so low that I could scarcely hear, but all at once to leave me at the last, more at the wonder than the loss, aghast, with huddled unintelligible phrase and frightened eye, in your journey of all days, with not one kiss or a good-bye, and the only loveless look, the look with which you passed, was all unlike your great and gracious ways. It is difficult, if not impossible, to put Kit Smart's great poem, A Song to David, in any class. It is neither an ode nor a lyric. It is, beyond denial, one of the most remarkable and glorious poems in our literature. A bright particular star, indeed, to have arisen in the late eighteenth century. Ostensibly addressed to King David, it is a hymn of ecstatic joy in all creation, in the physical and spiritual universes. Its love for all men and things, its adoring praise of the Holy Trinity, is not less burning than S. Francis's in his Song of the Sun, but its grasp and sweep are even vaster. Smart sings alike the praise of the creator, of the hoarding squirrel, of rich almonds, of the scholar bullfinch, of western breezes. Nothing is too great, nothing too small or obscure. It is preeminently a poem which cannot be cut without grievous damage. This one stanza, however, is a kind of epitome, a summing up of the whole. The pillars of the lower seven, which stand from earth to topmost heaven. His wisdom drew the plan. His word accomplished the design. From brightest gem to deepest mine, from Christ enthroned to man. End of chapter 10